Um, as you all know, um, Tom and Nick, in fact, are on the way back from Ecuador, and what we hear is a positive report of a productive trip, and we look forward, obviously, to hearing more from them and are thankful that they could do that. I'm going to continue the course through Matthew 22 this morning um, and talk about a woman who was married to seven brothers, which is pretty interesting stuff. You know, Tom, the easier passages can be handled by theologians like Tom, but when you get to stuff like this, you need an industrial sales rep to come in and really deliver. And, uh, and so that's what I'm going to do. The subtitle would be uh, round two in these uh, little tete-a-tetes. Round two, it's really different, but it's really the same. So let's jump in, and I'll give you just a quick outline of the passage. First of all, we'll talk a little bit about context, as we, as we always should. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the primary character, which are the Sadducees. We, we know a lot about the Pharisees, or at least we probably think we do, and uh, they're even a part of our vernacular. You know, if somebody's a legalist or something, we say, hey, don't be a, don't be a Pharisee or don't be Pharisaical. Uh, you don't often hear people say, hey, Adam, you're being Sadduceical. Uh, you don't hear it really often. So we'll get a little bit of a primer on the Sadducees. Um, we'll talk about this passage and sort of walk through uh, their, their entrapment effort and then, of course, how God, uh, Christ in his wisdom, sort of definitely handles that. We'll see the response of all involved, uh, and then we'll, um, we'll sort of regroup and talk about application. So uh, that's where we'll go this morning. So let's talk context. This is the final week. I wish I could just play Tom's from last week because it was really good, and mine's going to be just like his, just a little more baritone. Um, it was the final week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, as was mentioned last week. Uh, his authority has been increasingly on display um, in his authority over not just uh, uh, logic and truth, but over, over nature and over just everything. Um, and in fact, he had just delivered some parables that, that revealed the authoritative wisdom that he had, and he had really uh, sort of begun to poke a, uh, sort of a directly at the religious hierarchy, and uh, they were very much infuriated. Keep in mind, they had a pretty good gig um, for centuries, whether it's the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes or, or any of those folks. Uh, they had a nice little setup going. Uh, they were able to control people, uh, both for their own gain, their own sort of... Uh, power, and Jesus comes in, as we'll elaborate a little bit more on, and sort of messes up the game. Now, because of that, he's getting a lot of pushback, very direct pushback, and so what we see is last week, there's this, um, the Pharisees sort of make their run. Uh, they have a wedge issue, which seems to be pretty smart for them. Um, do we have to give taxes to those terrible Romans? Um, and, of course, the Sadducees wouldn't have taken that tack, as you'll understand in a minute. But they come this week after Jesus sort of uh, really easily addresses um, uh, the Pharisees. So then the same day, we're going to see the Sadducees come in and make a, a, another run from a different angle. Uh, their wedge issue is going to be around uh, w weddings, marriages, and a very interesting sort of uh, story and ultimately about the resurrection. So this will be sort of round two of the three. Uh, next week we'll get the third encounter back to the Pharisees um, and then we'll go into the woe passages where Christ very explicitly calls out uh, judgment on those folks. So let's, let's talk briefly about the Sadducees. Um, peers of all those other folks, you, know, you can probably see that behind me. Yeah, it's really cool. You can see. If I couldn't, if I looked around, there'd been nothing back there. I'd have been really bummed. Um, so let's talk Sadducees. They were not like the Pharisees. The Pharisees were sort of blue-collar religious folk. They were, I mean, they were, um, they were like regular people. Uh, obviously fastidious about their religion and all that, but they were not the aristocrats that the Sadducees were. The Sadducees were the priestly class. Uh, and in fact, they, they held a lot of prominence and actually sort of had a bit of a, a relationship or at least a working uh, relationship with Rome, as opposed to the Pharisees who often were sideways with, with Roman power. The Sadducees actually carved out a little niche. Um, they could control people, uh, and Rome often found that uh, maybe even to their benefit. Talked about that. They were, uh, they would say, protectors of the scriptures. Um, and by that I mean... Um, particularly the Pentateuch, but not the traditions. So keep in mind, the Pharisees had, they would say they loved the, the Word of God. Uh, they loved it so much they kept adding to it. Um, they had all these sort of oral traditions and rules and things that they had added over time. 
and they were passionate about all of it uh, and, and their ability to, to sort of measure their spirituality through all of it or by all of it. Uh, and, and then, of course, to measure the lack of spirituality of others by it. Uh, the Sadducees were not that way. We would have appreciated them for the fact that they did not add to um, the Bible, so to speak. Um, they were Old Testament people, no traditions. And in fact, they were, we would probably struggle with the fact that they were so Pentateuch devoted that they often didn't appreciate much of the rest of the, that Testament. But that gives you a sense of, of where their authority comes from, or they would say their authority comes from. It's the Old Testament, heavily the Pentateuch. Now, they were not supernaturalists. The Pharisees and those other folks generally were supernaturalists, as, as we are at Christ's covenant. Uh, we would believe, and the Pharisees would believe, uh, in uh, an afterlife and those sorts of things. The um, Sadducees did not. Um, they didn't believe that people went to, that, that God's people went to heaven, so none of that uh, Abraham's bosom stuff, that was just sort of fairy tale stuff. Uh, none of those um, angels and, and spirits and things like that, that was fanciful talk, and, and definitely a resurrection. Now, with regard to the afterlife, there were some elements within the, the, that community that would have said, well, you, you don't just sort of vaporize or annihilate, you, you, maybe you go to shell. You know, Sheol was this sort of, con this idea that you went to this place that was dark and quiet and you just sort of existed. It was not a happy place. It, it was neither heaven nor hell. So the Sadducees were, they either thought you just ceased to, exi uh, to exist or you went to this, this sort of stasis, this, this Sheol. But they definitely didn't believe uh, as the Pharisees and even as we would in those other places or anything supernatural. And which has led, of course, how many people in here uh, know that the Sadducees were Sadducee uh, because, you know, Tom, Tom sent me that in an email, and I'm pretty sure he thinks he thought of that. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody I read over the last three weeks has, has apparently thought they thought of that. It's really funny. Um, they were Sadducee, and it's not a surprise. I mean, this is it. This is it. And there's nothing to look forward to, and there's, there's no life that's empowered by the resurrection. And so, yeah, I can see why that would make you sad. Some um, aspiring writers have tried to come up with a sort of an equivalent for the Pharisees. Um, and they have said that because the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection, and they did believe in a heaven, that they saw far into the future, unlike the Sadducees. And so they were far, you see. I mean, it, it really, like I said, they were aspiring. It, it's a reach. Um, the Sadducees, because they didn't look ahead, because this was all it was, not surprisingly, they sort of went for it all right here, right now. Uh, whether it's financial gain or political power, uh, they didn't have the regulator or the governor of, hey, there's an accounting for this life. So just get what you can. So um, not surprisingly, it made them do things that we would consider maybe not good. Uh, if you go back to Jesus flipping the tables in the temple, you know, when he, those people were doing that stuff, selling stuff in the temple, those were the Sadducees' tables he was turning on. Um, they, were, they, were not, uh, they had no moral qualms with saying to a weary traveler who had come, you know, three days' journey with their little sheep or whatever they were going to sacrifice, they had no problem at all saying, I'm sorry, Zabibus, it's not worthy, it's not clean enough, it's not good enough. But we happen to have some for sale at a really good price that are really, really good. And so they did things like that, which did not endear them uh, to the regular folk. In that regard, the Pharisees came out looking pretty good uh, to the popular crowds. But the Romans, they, they had no problem with that. It's noteworthy that Sadducees as a group went away, effectively, in AD 70. Keep in mind, they were the priestly group, the priestly class, and uh, they worked the temple, and you may know that in AD 70, the temple was destroyed, and thus we had no need for that, that group of people working the ruins. And so Sadducees, for all historical intents and purposes, just sort of went away. Uh, Pharisees continued, of course. I'm trying to be slow in my transition. Here we go. So let's read the passage from Matthew 22, 23 to 33. And the same day, Sadducees came to him who say there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no uh, children, his brother must marry his widow. 
uh, and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were, uh, real or made up, they said, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring, let, uh, left his wife to his brother, and so to the second and the third, uh, down to the seventh, and after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you're wrong. I just pretty direct, you're wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We'll talk about that. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? That's a, that's a quote, by God. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, I'll confess, uh, you know, I've read this passage a few, uh, a bunch recently, and some personal thoughts popped out, which was, if, if I saw my brother marry a lady and my brother died, I probably wouldn't have thought much of it. But then if, Another one of my brothers married her, and then he died, and she kept kicking it. I, I would think, mm, that's coincidental. Um, when my third brother married her and died, if I were number four, I would have um, taken a transfer to Uzbekistan and, you know, pulled a two-year hitch to make my resume look good. I'd have been out. Um, these guys were you know, made up or real, they weren't apparently real quick because they kept marrying that girl, and, um, and they kept dying. The other thought I had, and this is horribly um, personal, is I started thinking about what if I had to marry my sister-in-laws? <laughs> and I'm sure that if they thought about marrying their brother-in-law, they would think the same thoughts. Um, so let's, let's lay into the passage. So they begin with uh, a resurrection question. So it's pretty obvious. It's, it's, it's sort of shameless, in fact. Um, these are people that are famously against the resurrection, and they ask Jesus a resurrection question. Um, yeah, just didn't seem real legit. But keep in mind, it was their go-to. So when the Sadducees and the Pharisees sat around having their little squall, their intramural debates, um, historians tell us that this was sort of a Sadducee golden oldie. This is what they would sort of use, you know, to the, to the Pharisees, to sort of hang up the Pharisees, knowing that the Pharisees did not have the wisdom of God, and apparently it was pretty effective. They asked it about a Levite situation. Now, that was not a, this is not, it's not from Levi, this is not some Jewish thing, this is a this is really sort of a cultural thing. And not just then, but it continues today. Uh, this this Levite practice is, uh, is, there are many countries today where this goes on. Not as exciting as seven brothers in a row, but there are cultures still where, um, because we want to maintain the community, uh, we need to provide for that widow, um, they would say, look, he died, um, you need to marry her. Uh, she needs kids because those kids will not only take care of her, they'll take care of the property, they'll take care of the, the land, and will sort of perpetuate community that way. Especially if you're in a community that doesn't marry outside. You have to, you have to keep that thing going internally. And so it, it's, it was obviously a part of a very patriarchal society, um, and so a little weird to us maybe, but um, this is how they did it, and this was the story that they used. And so it's the... She was married seven times. Who gets her in um, heaven? Um, a lot of thoughts. They think they're going to win either way, and here's why. And they had historical evidence that this was a good argument. Jesus could do one of at least a few things. He could deny the resurrection. He could say, yeah, you know, just you guys are right. In which case they would say, see, I told you, and you Pharisees, see, he, we're, we were right all along. Now, that was a long shot, um, but... They would have won if he had just disavowed the resurrection. Um, he could have said he doesn't know which one, uh, in which case they would then be able to say, see, you're no, you're no you know, Messiah from God. If you were, you'd know these things, but you're, you're ignorant like others. And so they would have won if he had said, I don't know. Um, he could have picked one. He could have said, well, clearly it's the first one. 
which case they would say, well, so what are you saying to the one she was married to at the end? The last one. They would have six sort of counters to that. He could have said, well, it's the last one. And they would say, well, is it the fault of the first guy just because he died? I mean, they had, they had ready-made sort of arguments. It was, it was a classic gotcha. And, you know, gotchas are, you know, it's like um, if I ask my friend Jack Holmes back there, Jack, have you, have you quit cheating on your taxes? I got him either way. Because, by the way, they're not laughing, so maybe they know something I don't know. Um, <laughs> if I say, did you quit cheating on your taxes? And you say, no. Wow, you're still cheating on your taxes. If you say, yeah, yeah, I've quit cheating on them. So you've confessed that you were cheating on your taxes. I mean, it's a gotcha. And this was their gotcha. This is, this is what, I guess, the best gotcha these theologians come up with. Either way, they win. At least they always had. So which of those options did Jesus choose? Well, he chose none of the above, obviously. Uh, he goes to the real issue, and it's going to be instructive for us when we get to the application part, that he didn't bite, and he didn't get pulled into, into the silly argument. He went to the heart, and their hearts were very full of pride. They were very proud of their knowledge, which becomes the indictment against them that they really didn't have that much. But they were really proud of their knowledge. They had a lot of information, a lot of data in their head about the Bible. But he says, you really don't know the Scriptures. And he goes on to prove that. They don't know them. They... They know a lot about how to um, perpetuate them, how to, how to make copies of them, how to preserve them. They apparently know a lot about how to argue them, but they apparently don't know them. And we'll talk about the difference. And they don't know the power of God. And, and we'll see that evidenced. They, it's not surprising that to people who have dismissed all the supernatural, you know, they've made a God that they can put in a box and manage. He doesn't do things that confuse them. He doesn't do things that are weird to them. He doesn't, he doesn't have fanciful tales of winged creatures flying around and, and an afterlife where you know, they, they, have, they are so smart, they are so rational that they have rationalized everything supernatural and what they've, what they've got is a God who has no power. So here we are, people that think they know God's word, but they don't. And they think they know about God, but apparently they don't even know that God is God. God is powerful. So he, he sort of establishes that, and then he begins with the first of the two issues, beginning with marriage. And, and, I, and I'll concede even before I go here, um, this could be for some, um, you know, I, I imagine even my take on this, uh, which I will believe is scriptural, uh, I imagine it could get sideways on some folks. That's not my intent, um, an issue like this probably has some passion. Um, it, it becomes personal. So I would encourage you to, um, to, to show me grace if you disagree. And then we can always talk afterward. He begins with marriage. And he says, you know, after the marriage, after the resurrection, marriage won't exist like you think of it. It won't be this marrying and giving in marriage, which are just two sides of that same coin. Uh, a man would marry, a woman would be given in marriage. It's the institution of marriage. And they've asked a question, this, this uh, gotcha question about uh, marriage after the resurrection, and he sort of hits them really hard, sort of calls them on everything. And he says, by the way, after the resurrection in eternity, we won't be married like you think. You, you, you really don't know the scriptures. Our marriages are pictures. We understand this maybe better looking back. Our marriages are a number of things. I'll just hit on a couple. Our marriages are intended to be pictures, as was prayed, of us, uh, of Christ in the church. We, we did not see that. We could not see that here. And God in his kindness has given us this type, this picture. This is the heart of what Christian marriage is. It is a picture. That's why breaking it, distorting it, perverting it is so terrible. Not because those people are so terrible. It's, it's terrible because they've distorted something so precious. So he said, marriage won't be like you think about it. Here, um, we have this, this need for the picture. But in heaven, we won't need the picture. We won't need a type of marriage. We will be in the marriage. We will be with the groom. The bride will be with the groom. And so some picture of how it will be gives way to how it is. I was thinking, um, uh, it's just 
thinking about the Biltmore House. I love the Biltmore House. And, and thinking about, I saw a picture of it the, the other day, and I was just, it's just, Biltmore House is beautiful. And it was a nice picture. But if I were standing in front of it at that long lawn, there's that hill if you've ever been there, that little place where you stand and you overlook it. If I was staring at that, one of these things that I really like to look at, and you said, hey, check this picture out. I'm like, dude, I'm looking at it. Don't give me a picture. I can go, I'm here. And marriage was a beautiful picture given to us in our need, but we won't need the picture in eternity. The bride will be with the groom, the real bride with the real groom. Secondly, marriages, let's call them what they were, they, met, they, they were given to meet needs. When Adam was made, God said, it's not good that he be alone. He needed a mate. We will not have that need in heaven. We needed to procreate. We had been given this task of populating the earth. But in heaven, we won't have that need. We will be complete. We will be full. We will be satisfied. We will not have gaps and, and, and wants and needs. We will be, with the real groom, perfectly satisfied in awe of him. And I'll elaborate more on that. He, he goes on to say, and this would have been a jab to these um, anti-supernaturalists, he said, you're actually going to be like the angels. Which, you know, rub it in. They don't believe in angels. He said, you're going to be like angels. Now, not in every way. We want to stay in context. You know, there, there are lots of uh, uh, types of angels, right? There, we see different characters of angels in the Bible, different appearances, and, you know, awesome and powerful and all that. And then, of course, there's the Hallmark kind. There's a little chubby kind. You know, there's, there's all kinds. Um, we won't go into sort of angelology right now and, and, and bust on Hallmark. What I would tell you that is within this context of marriage, we will be like angels. Because the angels, as we, we can read in Scripture, they are um, fully in love with God, worshiping God, serving God, uh, adoring God. They don't need to be married. Angels are not married. They have no need for that. They are fully wed to God. And he says, that's actually how we're going to be. Uh, we're going to be like angels in that regard. Um, obviously, that would have been, um, as I said, a, a jab to them. Now, I know there are lots of related questions. I want to come back in the application because what I've not hit on is, well, if we're not going to be married there, will we know? Well, I know my wife or my husband, things like that. I'll try to touch on that at the end. But I, I don't want to miss what was the main point when Jesus delivered this. He was not giving us a, a, a commentary on, will you know your cousin? Um, he was talking about uh, marriage and about the resurrection, and I want to sort of stay on that point. So let's go to, to point two. He's talked about marriage, and now he talks about the resurrection. We'll come back and discuss these both further. Regarding the resurrection, which they did not see in the Scriptures. Now, these are people that... Um, copied and preserved. They were not the copyists, but they oversaw. They, they were big Bible people, and they didn't see the resurrection in, in the Old Testament. Now, we could look at many, many places where it's there. I, I, I listed a few. I ended with the Pentateuch, which would have been sort of the, you know, the, sort of the big shot to them. Um, resurrection clearly assumed even. It's not even. Sometimes it's not even taught. It's like church membership. You don't get a Bible verse about you should be a member in a local church. It's modeled and assumed. It's just a part of what the Bible does. There is no, there is no church model where you're not in a local church. It's just, it's just biblical. And in the same way, the resurrection is just assumed. For instance, in Job, Job said, look, I know there's a time when my body's going to be broken and, and I'll, this body will be destroyed, yet I'm going to see God. Job, uh, written, by the way, before the Pentateuch, if I was taught well, um, the old book, he knew there would be an afterlife. Um, the Sadducees apparently didn't read that part. Uh, we would see it in uh, David's sort of wrestling with his lost child. His child had died, and he said, I can't, I can't, my child can't come back to me, but I can go to him. He had the hope of the resurrection even then, uh, and that was Old Testament. Uh, Jesus has helped us understand that the uh, Jonah narrative, this whole fantastic story of being in the belly of a fish and all that really... Uh, stuff that, you know, again, I, I couldn't go through a sermon without commenting on BBS, um, where in Vacation Bible School, all the whales were smiling. You know, they were purple and they were smiling. Uh, I don't think it was quite like that. 
what Jesus helped us understand is that that narrative was all about the resurrection. So again, you got the Sadducees going, we don't, we don't see it. Now, these are like the, these are the high, part, high points of the Old Testament, and it's all there. Isaiah. Isaiah looked ahead to a time. He prophesied of a time when all our tears would be wiped away. Well, when would that be, Isaiah? Well, it would be after this life. When because of the res- resurrection, we have a new life. And then uh, Jesus goes to the, the heart of it. Uh, these, these people who are the people of the Pentateuch, if you will. He goes to a story from Exodus 3. And we, most of us remember it. Uh, if not from reading the Bible, we remember it from the movie. Uh, it's the burning bush. And we can be thankful that CGI and other sort of technology has made that a lot more realistic. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember seeing the burning bush, and it was clearly like foil, like and with a fan blowing under it and a flashlight on it. I mean, it was, it was not believable. Uh, those graphics would make one consider atheism. But thankfully, um, CGI has made that a lot more realistic. But... So here's what happened. We remember the burning bush. It's an interesting, sort of fascinating thing. But do we remember that at that moment, at the bush that was burning, God said, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He didn't say I was. He said I am. And Jesus, uh, lest the point be missed, Jesus said, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So Sadducees, with your so shameless attempt to trick me up about the resurrection, may I say, you people of the Old Testament, that it's full, it's replete with with resurrection language, with resurrection truth. But since you are specialists in the Pentateuch, may I say to you that God himself said in the heart of the Pentateuch, at that that moment in, in Exodus 3 that you all love and you teach your kids about, did you miss the fact that he said, I continue to be, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who spoke in Exodus 3 believed in the afterlife. Those men died and he was still, present tense, their God. And there were many more places he could have went to. This is what's known, Jesus implies. This is what's known, um, this is the truth that's known by those who really know the Scriptures and really know the power of God. But if the Scriptures have been as they were for the Sadducees and often for the Pharisees, if the Scriptures are just a, a debating tool, if they're just a way for me to sort of play intramural ball and to win arguments, and if, in fact, we are so smart and so rationally uh, capable that we have um, rationalized God and taken away anything that doesn't fit in our box, anything that might embarrass us in debate or conversation with, with the, uh, a certain crowd, if we have went there, we yeah, the resurrection, hard to get your mind around it. But those who know the Scriptures and know the power of God, resurrection is very plausible. And, in fact, God, um, in Exodus 3, uh, was pretty confident in it. So let's talk briefly about the response before we move to some applications. Um, the response of the Sadducees, it was, it was radio silence. You know, keep in mind, for the Sadducees, this was their line. And it, it didn't work any, any better than it did last week with the, do we pay Caesar the money, the taxes? Uh, it didn't work. Now, I would submit, or I would, I would encourage you to keep in mind, sort of put your... Put yourself there for a second. We, we, we look back now, so we see Jesus is great and awesome, and we sort of have a, a revealed view of Jesus, a historically sort of a, a biblically informed view. And we, we see, in contrast, the Pharisees and Sadducees and all those other people as sort of aggravating legalists. I mean, we, we have all sorts of pejoratives for them because we, we see so clearly. But if you were on the side of that hill or wherever they were standing, you would not have had that informed view. You would have seen the most powerful people of the day. In in your local context, these people were the heat. They could make you or break you. And they have always won the arguments. The only ones they might wrestle with are amongst themselves. But these religious, powerful, uh, powerful religious people are not to be played with, not to be toyed with. They can ruin you. Now, contrast that to, here's Jesus. Jesus is a guy that they didn't fully appreciate like we might today. Um, He's a guy from Nazareth. Uh, He has no credentials, per se. Um, 
there's some question about his mom and dad. He's followed around by a bunch of uh, unlearned, generally, there's some learned, but often, you know, some smelly fisherman types. He has no house, much less, you know, some, some great um, clout. He doesn't even have a place he said to lay his head. So they're watching the, the establishment power um, absolutely spanked yet again, second time that same day, by this guy that, who is this guy? I mean, there was a reason they were awestruck. We, we kind of, we say we're in awe, but it's sort of a cognitive sort of, yeah, we get it. It's more data to us. They were watching the show, and they were awestruck, rightfully. The people, let's talk a little bit more about them. Um, what I would submit is that the people were rightly awed, but what I would encourage us to consider is um, being awed and being a believer. I want to I just camp here a little bit, because I recognize everybody here is not a believer. You, know, you may, may even be a member. It doesn't mean you're a believer. Um, awe does not equal biblical faith. Uh, and I would, just as a parenthesis, I would say biblical faith is, uh, hopefully you understand this, is repenting from this sort of saving of ourselves, whether that's through morality, church, or whatever, however you want to save yourself. We're on a path to save ourselves through goodness or lineage or skin color or political affiliation or whatever. We're on a path. We recognize that that is a path to hell. We repent and we turn from that path. And we turn in faith to Christ, to his path, because we recognize he's the only one that can save us. Anything that we had on our path was just simply not enough. We, we repent and we turn in faith to Jesus. That is biblical salvation. Awe is not biblical salvation. We may be inclined to think, wow, they all love Jesus now. No. They were in awe before when he fed a bunch of them with a little fish and a couple of bagels. But then when he didn't feed them the next day or two or a week, what did they do? They bugged out. Awe is fleeting. Biblical faith is lasting. Um, awe doesn't equal biblical salvation, nor does respect. Um, my old boss, um, brilliant guy, Harvard Law, the whole nine, he would speak glowingly of Jesus as a great moral teacher. He really respected Jesus. The problem is, Jesus doesn't give you the option of just thinking he's a great guy. You know, Lewis wasn't the only one so that, that pointed out that you really don't get the option of saying he's really great. Because if, you, if he's such a good guy, why did he say that he was the only way to God? Why did he, why did he make the claim? So you, you either got to go with him all the way or just need to say he's a nut. So this notion that I respect Jesus a lot, A, that's not equal to salvation, and B, it's just, it doesn't hold up logically. Because if he's so good, why did he lie so much? If he wasn't who he said he was, he was a really great moral liar or not. Imitation also in the third of these. Just like um, being in awe of an event doesn't equal salvation. We don't want to confuse that. Respecting Jesus doesn't equal salvation. Even imitation, even if that respect goes on to imitation. And that to me was the danger uh, you remember uh, not that many years ago the revival of the old Charles Sheldon book, In His Steps, which led to, of course, capitalists take every revival and make money on it, and so they sold bracelets that had WWJD on them. You know, what would Jesus do? I knew lots of people that were not Christians who wore WWJD bracelets. And it, it made sense to them. Jesus was a great moral guy. He made good decisions. He treated people well. Yeah, why don't I... Do what, what I think he would do. The problem is you can imitate Jesus all you want to. It's not biblical salvation. And in fact, if it, 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 at the core of it, if the, the basis of your imitation is a hope that you're really not that bad, and if you try hard enough, you can be like him. Well, you've not done anything that amounted to salvation. You've, in fact, won against him. Because he didn't come to get people to act like him. He came to save the needy. He came to save sinners. He didn't come to create clones. Now, he does for those he redeems. He makes us like him. But he didn't come down and say, y'all start acting like me. He came down and said, repent. And after you repent and follow me in faith, I'll set about transforming you to be like me. So let's do a quick review, real quick. What have we covered in the passage so far? Uh, it's another effort by the establishment to 
to marginalize Jesus, uh, to challenge his authority. He, of course, handles it with massive patience, wisdom, and grace. Um, he's not fooled by their ploy. He recognizes it. He goes to the heart of the matter. He teaches on marriage and resurrection. He exposes the emptiness of their, their vain religion, and they're silenced, and the crowd is in awe. Okay, that's what we covered. Now let's, let's move to two application slides and we'll be done. First, for those who, who aren't believers, and I don't just mean you're a visitor here and you've never been to church before. I mean, you could have been here a thousand times. If you still are on a path that says, I'm going to try to have enough quiet times, I'm going to try to be good enough, that's still the wrong path. You, know, you don't have to be a drunk to be on the wrong path. You can be an elder or a deacon to be on the wrong path. So to those here, uh, whether you've never been here but today or two times or a thousand times, uh, if you've not come to biblical faith, uh, I would submit this passage has a few things for you. Uh, one is the dangerousness of arrogance. Um, the Sadducees were arrogant, and as Keith, I thought, uh, said well in his email this weekend, um, and, and Rick reminded us, we need to be careful lest we be like them. We'd be so full. I, I do think that we, we often, um, yeah, I, I think as good Reformed people, I see it in myself, and I hear it sometimes in our conversations. We can sort of be proud of how, how good we are as good Reformed people. You know, um, the Reformers, I don't believe, did all that work, and I don't believe God used it the way he did so that we could feel like we are so much better than Arminians. I just don't think that was the plan. Um, yeah, enough said about that. But arrogance is dangerous. Look at what it did to them. Look at how far it kept them from the truth. Um, and by the way, whether it's pride in your religion or pride in your lack of religion, um, your kid goes off to college now and everybody wants to identify as a nun. You know, follow that language, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E. You know, that's the, one of the sort of, uh, trending sort of, uh, sociological, uh, events now. Um, people don't want to identify as a Baptist or a Catholic or, a, or whatever. They want to identify as a nun because they have no affiliation. Their affiliation is with none. And I would submit that whether your arrogance is over how well you keep your religion or your arrogance is over how little religion you have. Arrogance is arrogance. And God uh, hates pride. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So um, for anybody here today who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, um, we would want to check our arrogance and uh, whichever version we have, and recognize that it, it will keep us from salvation. And, and, and it goes without saying, or it should, um, arrogance can be within the body of Christ. We, as I've already given, given an example, we need to check our own arrogance as well. Um, and the second, and just, uh, there are only two, the second point for those who might not know Christ here today, um, I would submit to you that religion is not the end game. Please know Religion is not the goal. Um, some, some may think it is, some may act like it is, but in fact, religion uh, is not only not the, the end goal, it, it often is the problem. Uh, it, if in our religion, whether it's um, out there religion or in this building religion, if in it we build a, a meritocracy, we build a um, a, a system whereby we do things so well that we are not only better than, but we actually are impressive to God. Well, then that's, that's religion run amok. You know, the, <laughs> that's a dangerous thing. That's nothing to be proud of. In fact, it's a problem. And we know this is real. Um, I remember the first time I read uh, the quote from Marx that religion was the opiate of the masses. And I remember being so offended by that, but let's be honest. Religion often is. The religion, it's the opiate. It, it's often used for control. It's been used to manipulate people into building massive structures. It's been used to move armies. It's, religion is a powerfully dangerous thing. That's why we don't call you to religion here. We, we would not call you to any religion, not even our religion. What we would call you to is faith in Christ. Um, we recognize that there is, there is a godly religion. Uh, James 1 says the religion that, um, that's pure and undefiled, that, that God respects. 
just loving widows and orphans. The religion can be redeemed. But apart from the gospel, religion is mighty dangerous. Uh, I'm very sure, I'm very sure that more people will be, at, will, will be out of hell over religion than over booze and stuff like that. Uh, religion is a power. Look, the, I remember the, where I grew up at, the people that were drunks, they knew they needed help. But the people that had been deacons for 35 years that didn't know Christ, that's what's dangerous because they were already there. So we don't call you to religion. We call you to faith. Now for the believers, last slide. Um, clearly there's some practical benefits as we see how Jesus handled these, these folks with their gotcha. He clearly demonstrates a wisdom when confronted. He's not surprised by the fact that these two opposing groups have gotten together. You know, they're always against each other, but now they're, they're ganging up. He wasn't surprised by that, nor should we be. Uh, we will be, if, if we engage in, in, in discourse at work or at school, we will find people ultimately or inevitably who don't like each other that find that they actually sort of like each other when they're fighting us. Jesus dealt with that, and we would expect that too. Um, he was not distracted by even the cagiest of their arguments. Um, by the way, none of, their, none of the arguments that we'll be confronted with today are new. Um, that is one of the curses of youth. You think you, you think a thought is new to you, you know, kind of like Tom and the Sadducee joke. You, you think it's new. So, you know, the kid that's the, the sophomore in college, whatever, they, they come to this idea and they think, look, I've discovered this. This is the problem with Christianity. And I would submit that, yeah, and that guy 2,000 years ago thought that too. He's dead and the church marches on. Don't be full of arrogance because of your idea. Um, Jesus wasn't distracted by those tricky arguments. He went after the heart. He was gracious but direct. And um, we would be as well. Now, here's where, uh, sort of as I wind down here, where I could offend just a little bit. Uh, I did take a lot out of this that I thought was highly offensive, but for what that's worth. Um, heaven, and this is to believers, to us, heaven is not like a country song or a better America. I had in it a whole lot about country songs because I have a lot of that still swirling around in my head. Um, but I boiled it down to heaven is not like a country song or a better America, meaning it's not about us. Um, country songs, country gospel songs, um, often want us to think about when we get there. I don't want to sing. I, I sang at, at a little bit at a sermon earlier this year, and apparently it, it it, we had lost all membership over that, so I, I won't sing. Um, but, but it is popular culture sort of music to, to talk about this heaven where we, we get up there and we see our big house and we see granny and we go meet famous people. I can't wait to talk to Abraham Lincoln. That's who I want to talk to. Oh, we're going to ask questions like, God, why did you make mosquitoes? Or what's up with poodles? They're not dogs. I mean, what's... And I was going to talk about cats, but I knew that would offend some people. But I just did it anyway. Um, we, we, if we're not careful, have this very sort of um, non-lofty view of heaven where it's really about us. It's really just a better America. You know, what's the American dream? Bigger house, nice stuff, People are surrounded by people that love us and tell us we're great. It's the American dream. And when we talk about heaven, sometimes it sounds a lot like America on steroids. We're going to get there and see our house, and we're going to get there and hang out with our people. We're going to go to that grand golden crowd buffet in the sky and eat and eat and not gain weight, which is attractive, I will admit. Um, but those are not biblical ideas. Those are cheap ideas. You can overeat here. You can go in debt and get a big house here. Why would heaven be great if it was just some more of our excesses? And why would heaven be great if it was about us? What's, where's God in it? If it's just us imagining more, it becomes not our best life now, our best life then, which sounds like a, a name of a sequel to a book. What I would submit in contrast to that is what we see when people see heaven. 
And I'm going to give some common examples. When Isaiah saw the Lord, high and lifted up, rightfully adored. What did he say? I got questions. Is it a big house? You know, at least it reminded me of that, that song that was popular. You know, it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room. Lots of room to play football. Really cool song. I'm not sure it was thoroughly biblical. Um, it was a cool song. Um, when Isaiah saw the Lord, he did not go for any of those, give me more. He, he was in awe. And then we jump over to the other end of the book and we see John exiled on Patmos on this island and he sees heaven. And what does he do? Where's Granny? He's in awe. And then we fast forward all the way to, to Revelation 7. And we see people from every kindred and tribe and tongue. They're all around the throne. They're not talking about their wives or their husbands. They're not talking about their extended family. They are worshiping the God of heaven. If, if heaven is, a, is, a, is to us this place where we're just going to sort of consume our own personal desires, sort of like you know a better now, unencumbered, we have a couple of things awry. We have a really big view of ourselves. And we have a really, a really small view of God. God is absolutely central to heaven. Those three examples, and I'm, I'm pretty sure the Bible would support all through, that God is what's great about the afterlife. So, to the question of, will I, will I be with my, I've I, I loved this woman or this man for 40 years. I can't imagine heaven without them. Look, I'm not saying you won't know them. I'm not saying you, there won't be plenty of love to go. And, and look, 1 John 3 tells us, I mean, we, we don't know what God's prepared for us. And we want to be, I don't want to be dogmatic about things that are unclear. But what I will tell you is clear is that if heaven is about those things, we have not only thought little, uh, uh, much of ourselves, but we have thought little about how great God is. Why would it be heaven if it's just more of this? So, final application for believers. God is powerful. What does that mean? They did not know the power of God. Okay. Cognitive. We get it. He's able to raise the dead. Which... If he can raise Jesus, then Jesus can raise us to be with him. I get that. This is the enabling of eternity. I get that. But does it not mean more? What's it mean that God is powerful to our hopes? If God is not powerful, and by the way, just to beat the horse, if heaven's about us, God is not that great. And if he's not that great, he's not that powerful. And then our hopes become sort of sized to match his power or lack of power. And so our hopes become small. Hope for our children. Hope for, hope for that family member. Hope for uh, a fruitful life. Hope for this church. Hope, 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 hope. If God is not great, our hopes will surely not be great. And I'd submit often we have really small hopes because we have a really small God. I have really small hopes because I have a really small view of God. But it isn't just our hopes. Hopes are often walked out in prayer. If God is powerful, what does that mean to our prayer? To our prayer life? To our prayers? If God is powerful, we would ask big things because He is able to do big things because He's a big God. The God who is central in heaven, central in heaven, Everybody is around him, worshiping him. Angels, people from all walks. If, if, if he's that God, I bet he could reach out and do great things now. Now. It's not just otherworldly power. It's now power. But I'll confess, and maybe you would confess, that I don't pray prayers that always say that God is powerful. I often pray safe prayers. Prayers that maybe I think are sort of realistic. I could see that happening. That's why, you know, you take that person at your, at your office or in your family that's really antagonistic to the faith, and you go, I could never 
I could never, I never see them coming to Christ. Just never. Because God's apparently not big enough to get a hold of them. Now, he could turn Paul, he could turn the king, he could turn nations. Yeah, yeah, I know, I believe that in my head. But somehow, like, when it gets down to where I work, that dude's just too mean. No. If God is big, God is able. Um, and that affects our hopes, our prayers, and it affects as we walk it out finally. Uh, it affects our effort. Because if God uh, being big gives us big hope, and if God being uh, big and powerful means that we can pray for big things, well, then it follows that we can actually walk toward big things. So it's not only that God is able to save the scary person, we are, in, we are motivated to pray that God would save the scary person. And in fact, we are empowered to go talk to the scary person. If God is that way, all those things follow. But if he's not, and it's just you know, the alternative, yeah, prayers will be diminished, they'll be, they'll be safe, and we will never leave the house. God is more and deserves more from us. So even as I close, I would, um, yeah, I would encourage us to, um, I think we'll have, have a time of silence and then an, an elder will pray. Um, I would encourage us to think about that God the God who Jesus um, displayed so fully, the God that the Sadducees could not wrap their minds around, but the God who is not only able to raise his son, but is able to raise us and will ultimately bring us into this heavenly, wonderful place, which is real, by the way. Uh, I don't know about the, the caricatures from the posters and the pictures we saw when we were kids. I sort of discount a lot of that. But you know what? Heaven is real. And God is in the middle of it, and it's all about Him. It's all about Him. If we're, if, we're, if we're upset that it won't be like we wanted it, well then, that's great. It points out that it's about us. It's about Him. And if it's about Him and He's that great, well then we are moved, not only this week, but even now, to acknowledge that greatness and to ask God to give us faith in that greatness and then to move in obedience with that sort of as our hope and that as our, our encouragement. So... Let's uh, take a moment to pray and then uh, an elder will lead us.